1: Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode twenty-six of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The podcast where we re-examine the '90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard magazine. Not ashamed to admit that I don't have an ant, may but I may have an ant. I'm Adam. It's so weird, <laughs> and feeling my spider sense tingle because Adam will likely be making more dangerously bad jokes
0: throughout the podcast, which is almost inevitable i'm michael <laughs>
1: <laughs> and joining us this time around a comics fan who knows the score you may know him from appearances on the claremont to claremont and case in point podcasts. please welcome to the show jody Yerdin. how's it going i'm doing great boys thanks for having me on i really appreciate it long time listener uh
2: first time uh
1: guest yeah i mean that is for sure you are long overdue to join us on the show you were one of the first listeners or even just when we announced the potential of doing the show you reached out to us on social media so it's wonderful to finally get to have a a conversation with you
2: the pleasure is all mine
1: but you know we want to go back even further jody we have to hear your origin story
2: Well, uh, I was first introduced to comic books like most kids my age through toy lines like Superpowers and Secret Wars, and everything just kind of snowballed from there. I remember getting my first comic book, which I still have. It was uh, Detective Comics 353, and it was a uh, Black Mask story that a three and a half year old, which I was at the time, definitely shouldn't have been reading. <laughs> But apparently my parents went ahead and got it for me, and the rest is history. I've been pretty much enraptured with stuff ever since, so.
1: Now, did you have comic book stores near you where you got to visit? A lot of people talk about, oh, there wasn't a comic book store around.
2: I think there were, but I never really knew of the existence of any kind of comic book stores in my area until probably 93, 94 in that neighborhood. I got wind that there was one right in town from me that I was able to go and visit, but until that time, I actually I was driving maybe an hour to go to different comic book stores an hour south of me. But for the most part, no. It, it was just a spinner rack or mom and dad are going to get cigarettes or something like that hopefully let me tag along and <laughs> give me a couple bucks to uh, throw my
1: way. <laughs> so are you saying that whenever you ever want to sell your comic books, you can't say from a smoke-free home? <laughs> <laughs> no, I
2: cannot say. I, I Again, now, anything in the last 20 years or so, but uh, yeah, for the most part, no, I can't make those claims. They're, you know, that, that paper's pretty brief riddle to begin with being from the 80s but
0: it's not great <laughs> so i've got a question for you because uh, you know we you and i are on video chat you've got a lot of cool stuff right behind you do you have a particular issue of something that is your favorite like this is something that really o- other than your first like what opened your eyes like oh my goodness i gotta this is it That's
2: crazy you'd mention that, because I can't, I don't know if you can see it in the picture, but it's actually this one right here, Justice League 250, Justice League of America 250, that's from 86, okay and and, you know, that would have hit me when I was four or five, that same era, not Mm -hmm. long after getting one of my first books, it's one of the first comics I had ever gotten, and just looking at the cover, it's got Superman, it's got Green Lantern, it's got Batman, and a green arrow on it, so it's hitting big shots that I like so much, so... When I saw that as a kid and I bought it, it was the first kind of big team up book that I had gotten and it just it blew my mind. It's still one of my uh, favorite books to this day. You can go back, you know how it is when you get your first book that really sticks with you, where you can go mm-hmm. back and you know the ads, you know what's on the back cover, you know all the ads on the inside. It's yeah, yeah it's it's great.
0: Yeah, like, you like you you know the feel of that paper when you turn that page, the whole like everything just has some sort of like resonance to it. That's that's yep. a cool feeling. That's mm-hmm. awesome.
1: Now, obviously, you started, you know, collecting in the 80s. You know, you're you're getting used to it. As the 90s rolled around, like you said, 93, 94. Now there's comic shops on every corner, seemingly, throughout the nation. What was your experience in newer books that were coming out in the 90s? What did you latch on to?
2: Well, it's funny, you know, I I was giving us some thought, and I was thinking of my first experience with Wizard. Initially, before Wizard, I was buying a, a different price guide that was called Comics Values Monthly. And it was a price guide, and it was like Wizard. It even had a poster in it, which was like, wow, it's got a poster. But it was black and white. It was on newsprint. So when I came across Wizard, and I saw that has a poster and cards and articles, and it's in color, it blew my mind. It was like everything that I was already buying, but, you know, on steroids, you know, as far as (laughs) Wizard goes. As far as what comics I was buying in the 90s, I was still mostly a DC kid. I did get a little bit of the image bug as far as uh, maybe Gen 13. I was pretty big into Gen 13. Right. Uh, I was a 13-year-old boy, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, never really big into, like, Spawn or anything like that. I had a few issues here and there that I could, you know, you'd find occasionally, but that... Uh,
0: was mostly, you're uh, my kind of people.
1: You're you and me. You're, you're my kind of people. That's yeah.
2: right. He's, he's, he's a little bit of X-Men here and there, but yeah, mo- mostly just a DC kid.
1: Now speaking of Wizard, Jody, you had a very interesting interaction with Wizard. In fact, you got some personal communication and a, a little bit of swag. So, what can you tell us about that? Well, for Wizard's 100th anniversary
2: issue. They had a scavenger hunt, which I'm not sure if it was the first scavenger hunt that they'd had or.
1: I think it's. I think your letter said the seventh annual.
2: It might have been. I'm not sure, but it was. It was their biggest one to date. I know that. And you know, with the wizard scavenger hunt, they would have you gather, you know, weird stuff like pencils and just kind of weird odds and ends. Here's a comic book. Here's just we, weird we, stuff here and we there. We read I, one that I they remember, wanted
0: like a wrapper to a straw. We're like, what? Yeah, a wrapper to a yeah. straw? <laughs> it looks That's so weird.
2: Or something like a business card for your local comic shop, That maybe that's worth five points. And I I remember it all fit in a shoebox, everything I sent. You were supposed to amass as much points as you could. I think there might have even been a quiz involved. But I remember one of the things you were supposed to send in was a picture of you reading Wizard in public. So I, I saw that, and I thought, well, all right, I can do that, but what can I send them? To make sure, I want to make sure I get I get a prize. I want to send them something to remember me by. So I didn't necessarily send a picture of me reading Wizard in public. I sent them a picture of me posing nude <laughs> with a picture of Wizard in front of, <laughs> you know... You know Kind of like Shawn Michaels when he was in Playgirl back in the 90s, or maybe I think Burt Reynolds before that. So I thought, well, if I send this, then they have to send me some kind of prize, right? And lo and behold, I was right. They did. Uh, I was a second prize winner, and I won a grab bag of uh, signed comics that were not probably worth putting my dignity on the line for, but uh, I won all the all the same.
0: <laughs> that is fantastic. I love that. The, the thing is we would do... 20 years ago because you're like who's ever gonna see this picture it's yeah. okay it's, awful. it's... <laughs> that was my
2: reasoning well they're gonna well, who cares? I'm gonna I'll I'll send it in. What are they gonna say? Now I wouldn't want to take my shirt off at the beach. Yeah, right. but here I'm like that's no big deal. I'll just send it in.
1: Well, it feels like you were like seven years too late because if this had been nineteen ninety-three, you'd be getting all these gold editions of image books and valiant <laughs> books, and by the time it was coming around to you it was like two thousand. Oh no, we're in the doldrums of comic books. Yeah. This is the after party that is everybody's drunk and nobody cares. <laughs>
2: I received the signed Wu Tang comic. Uh, that's pretty much the uh, extent
0: of it, though. Not not <laughs> who, quite. Who left. signed it? Like like Red Man and Method Man, or like? <laughs> no, it was like
2: the artist. I'm like, I don't even know who this is.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh well, that is great. Well, so you know, obviously they had to send that letter to you in the mail, let you know you were a winner, and uh, let's find out what some of the readers were sending back in Willie Lumpkin's mailbag. <laughs>
0: I have not yet looked at this letter. I don't know what I'm in store for here. And it's always a worry whenever I don't look at these ahead of time. The first one comes from a guy by the name of Joe Dolan from Metchkin, New Jersey. And he writes, Re... Wizard number twenty-three. So this usually means that there's some sort of complaint that happened in a previous issue. <laughs> so I, I have a strong feeling this is what's gonna be. What's up with you guys? Matthew Pinsanel wrote in his letter in Wizard Number 23 that he's a major fan of Power Pack. So what? Who are you guys to judge? One guy's poison is another guy's pleasure. And in your response to Tom Buttram's letter Tom Buttram I remember this guy also in Wizard number 23 your first line reads what kind of name is Buttram what's with that is wizard headquarters a bunch of 10 year olds in judges robes you keep alienating readers like that and in time you won't be able to give these magazines away Every other feature of Wizard is professional, <laughs> except your attitudes. Don't try to weasel out of this by telling me to lighten up or by saying, if you don't like it, don't buy it. The only thing I don't like is the high horse you guys ride with writing your letters. Responses Joe Dolan, New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right, so Wizard said, I received about six or seven letters chastising me for the way I made fun of Matt Pinsendalt's taste in comics. I did rag on him kind of hard, so if you're still reading Matt, sorry. To try and get back in the graces of the hundreds, or is that dozens, of Power Pack fans, let me give a little free advertising here. Aubrey Crookshanks of Sumter, South Carolina, sent in the address for a Power Pack fan club fanzine dubbed Power Pages. Anybody interested in learning more about Power Pack should write to, and gives the address. As far as your assessment of Wizard Headquarters goes, 10-year-olds in judges' robes is pretty accurate. (laughs) that that feels
0: about right okay and now we have a second one so damien b caprio again from new jersey keensburg new jersey all the trolls are in new jersey (laughs) i lived there for four years trust me there's a lot of trolls
1: (laughs) (laughs) sorry new jersey you know i love you
0: it's fairly accurate dear wizard I started buying Wizard around issue number nine. And while I say that the format of your magazine has improved, the opinions of most of your staff have sorely declined. I feel insulted to pick up a copy of Wizard and read things like this idiotic X-Men versus Iron Man kick that was <laughs> in the last few issues. Who cares? If you're going to report on the comics industry... Keep the personal comments out of it. I thought this area, Magic Words, was for the exchange of legitimate information. I've seen more goofy letters in Wizard than I've seen anywhere else combined. I guess he was reading, like, Penthouse Forum at the same time, so... (laughs) (laughs) you know i don't know yes i wrote a letter way back asking about six or seven questions hey if somebody else can do it and it got printed and answered i can too but there's no clue whatsoever that it even existed you're a pretty popular magazine you're all very busy but that's because of the people like me who Buy your magazine on a regular basis. If we all decided not to buy it anymore, you would be out of a job. You need us. We don't need you.
1: <laughs>
0: wow, they're really going after. Wow. Okay. In closing, I just like to say that at the beginning it was great, but then it all went downhill. Oh, they don't even know how much further downhill this will go. Yes. We got a long way that goes really downhill. If I want childish comments, I'll visit my daughter's first grade class and ask them to make fun of the comics industry.
1: (laughs) Wow. And uh, Wizard's response, it'd be even better if we dressed up her first grade class in judges' robes. (laughs) Hey, call back, call back. Now, it this really is the is. thing, wow. right? These guys cannot stand that Wizard is so snarky that they actually have a point of view. Like, Jody, you're telling us you're, you're reading, you know, these comics values monthly, and there's the Comics Journal, there's Comic Scene, there were all these magazines that were out and around. And I have to assume they were pretty, like, you know, focused on journalism and pretty dry. And what people don't realize is that the reason Wizard was popular was A, like you said, color. It just looked better than everything else on the stands. But it actually had exciting and, yes, sometimes offensive points of view. But it got you talking. It got you thinking. It either got you laughing out loud or it got you steamed. You know, like, <laughs> that's that's the mark of a good periodical. periodical? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but to me, I, I think that's a, that's really what set them apart and made them popular. It's just these old curmudgeons don't want to get with the times.
2: It's got that 90s attitude.
0: It's kind of funny, though, and, and as time progresses. I truly believe that a lot of these people that write these letters grow up to be the trolls of Twitter. It just <laughs> it just feels like that's the natural progression. They went from here to like AOL chat
1: rooms to Twitter. That's kind <laughs> of where it went. Yeah, but really, that last guy, he was made it very clear he was just bitter they never printed his letter. Oh, 100%. So he's taking them yeah. to task, you know. <laughs> they won't print my first letter? Well, they'll print this one.
0: You'll see. <laughs> I'll get them good. And that is Willie Lumpkin's mailbag.
1: All right. Well, this time around, here we are. This is an October 1993 cover date. And as we get into the table of contents, this is a Spider-Man in Hobgoblin cover. You know, hobgoblin obviously has his pumpkin bomb i think they were trying to tie it somewhat into the halloween season and this is like a mark bagley cover so it's just some pretty standard art it's one of those things where it's kind of like it's a filler there, there was nothing big going on in spider man comics at the time it was just kind of like eh, let's put spider man on the cover again we decided <laughs> to do Deathblow last issue it should have been spider man so give the people what they want
2: i would like to say uh this this would have been my third issue of wizard And this was the first issue I bought where I actually knew who the character was on the cover. So Thank you. Thank you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know half the time. Like, who is this? I'm like, I don't know. It's 2020. (laughs) Do they exist now? No, then I don't care. (laughs) Great. Moving on.
1: Our cover artist, Mark Bagley, is featured along with the other members of the Spider-Man creative team over at Marvel in an article titled Slinging Webs for a Living. But it's interesting because immediately we see that there is dissension in the ranks because editor Danny Fingeroth states that you know I, I prefer to give each creative team the ability to write their own stories not mandate the direction of the books to be one continuous story throughout the four titles but David Michelini oh there he is again always in the middle of controversy responds quote I think it's interesting that Danny says he doesn't do that since every plot I've done since he took over as editor has been editorially directed or suggested <laughs> So it's kind of like oh yeah he tells us it's happy-go-lucky No, there's a bottom line we gotta we gotta follow <laughs> now Stephen Grant who was writing Spectacular Spider-Man at this time describes his take on Peter Parker from a psychological perspective he says quote basically he's still a teenager in our heart of hearts we're all still what we were in high school that is an unfortunate statement
2: <laughs> where are we though how do we I feel about
1: that assessment of our maturity level Michael that 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 is horrendous. It
0: is just, it is one of the most incomprehensibly dumb statements I've ever heard. If I was the same person I was 25 years ago, I. What? what
1: oh, I mean, that's the general perception at least of comic book readers right oh they're all immature they live in their mom's basement they never grew up you know like it's, it's definitely a different thing you know now jody and i talked about reading gen 13 back in the day again our <laughs> our perspective on women would not be uh help in our no. lives these days
0: no. i mean you know not to get too metaphorical or whatever but like everyone has in their like mind's eye what age that they looked in the mirror what they think they still look like but in Like if i look in the mirror i'm like i could see myself still being 25 maybe but then i realize that i'm 38 i'm like no no that's just not gonna work because you just like also as you get older like you can't make the same doofy comments
1: or like statements or whatever it just doesn't translate it doesn't make sense yeah that's just a little bit of projecting his own concerns about himself onto the audience he's in his
0: mom's basement is what he's trying (laughs) to say
1: now the other thing that's interesting is he mentions about how This kind of stuff wouldn't fly with his wife. He just takes off whenever he wants. He's going out in costume, just swinging around, you know, so. I thought that was funny, but getting off of, you know, the personal point of view that the writers are injecting into our comics, um... Included in the article, just kind of randomly, actually, is the original concept sketch of Carnage. Now, Mark Bagley, apparently, is the one who delivered this to Wizard. He gets a special thanks in Garib's letter from the publisher at the front of the issue. And this is really interesting, this design, because it shows him, basically, he has, like, flowing red hair tendrils, is what it looks like. You know, Cletus Cassidy is a redhead. It looks like they really tried to, like, expand that in this. But the caption under the picture states that there were only two designs ever for Carnage. But back in issue number 10, Bagley was being interviewed and described a very different Carnage costume, stating, quote, my first design for Carnage was actually pretty similar to Venom. It was a black suit, but instead of a normal spider symbol on his chest, it was going to be a red smear, like a spider had been crushed on his chest and really bloody. So it's kind of interesting. The wizard is not reporting this correctly. So, you know, whatever actual wizard staff doesn't do their research back in the day, Wizards is here to set the record straight.
0: (laughs) I also wonder like there have been incarnations of carnage whether it's like what if scenarios where it's it's almost like a female carnage and I wonder because I remember that they had said originally they wanted venom to be a female villain and I wonder if that like even though this drawing clearly looks like a, a male body type I wonder if it was intended to be maybe at one version of it maybe female
2: right it definitely has a kind of a female vibe to it as far as
0: yeah. uh yeah the- you know what it also kind of feels like as if craven the hunter had become carnage oh yeah i can see <laughs> <You> know, that <laughs> kind of like lion maney sort of looking as well yeah.
1: it's cool now moving beyond spider-man wizard news announces that john byrne frank miller art adams mike mignola dave gibbons jeff darrow and paul chadwick are forming a super group Called Legend, which is going to feature an icon in a, of an Easter Island head that will appear on the covers of each creator's book that will, quote, hopefully be our pledge of quality, saying, This is good stuff to read, at least according to John Byrne. Whenever you say the term supergroup, I envision like um, a metal band, like
0: Soundgarden and like Stone Temple Pilots came together and made one supergroup.
1: Kind of <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's Audio Slave, there's a supergroup, yeah. yeah. Exactly.
2: Traveling
1: Wilburys. They're all older guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so we're going to talk more about Legend in issue 31, because they actually have the cover. But I just thought it, it was worth mentioning at this time because uh, Rob Liefeld, on his Rob Observations podcast, recently covered basically this wake of image imitators. Groups that were coming together, and he would say like, we created this huge movement in the industry, and then everybody said, oh, well, you gotta be a faction, you gotta be a gang, you gotta be a group. And that you show we're united to bring you quality comics. Now, another thing that Rob has claimed was in response to the absolute, you know, juggernaut the image had become was the Death of Superman storyline. And now, continuing in that trend, we're wrapping up Nightfall as we're reading this issue, but Green Lantern is reported to be DC's next victim, as they put it. He's revealed to have a big storyline coming up that's going to massively change the direction of the character. Hal Jordan rebels against the new group of Guardians, battles the Green Lantern Corps as a renegade so uh, definitely when we get to that storyline i know we got to bring your buddy pete on michael he's the the green lantern expert i'm looking forward to this because i haven't read this story in a long time and i'm looking
0: forward to when we get to this i'm, I'm pumped for this, this is now, a jody
1: good you're a dc guy was green lantern in your long box back in the day
2: absolutely i was uh that was one of my monthlies that i was buying at the time and i remember being kind of excited for this uh storyline, and then probably less so after it happened but i, I still enjoy it <laughs> i <laughs> Probably less so. Fifty poster hanging elsewhere in the basement. Here, I enjoyed the story. I enjoyed it, but I, I won't go into depth. Okay. There,
0: there, there are parts that are less to be desired. For I would, yeah. I would agree. Yes, yes. It <laughs>
2: Part part's Green Lantern was a pretty easy to find on the spinner racks at the time, so that was one that I'd usually uh, make it a point to pick up.
1: Okay. Now, there's also mention that Captain America might die over at Marvel, because the comic book industry motto in these days was borrowed from a Metallica album, "Kill 'em all. You know, was <laughs> just like, that was going to sell your books. If you kill them, the kids want blood in the title, and they want dead heroes that are iconic. Put them in the grave. Oh, boy.
0: Did he die though in this time period? I don't. He doesn't die. He doesn't die till after, like way in the future. But like they touted him as dying in Civil War, and he doesn't actually die in Civil War. He does. He dies the issue after Civil War. Like it's so. Like I don't know. Yeah, so and weird. I'm not
1: sure if this is the era where he eventually gets the cap armor. I think that's farther down the line. But he yeah, may have had later some terminal illness that gets cured or something.
2: I feel like it's close to this. He gets some sort of new shield. It's like an energy shield. I think it's... Is it issue 425? That sounds like it's right around this period of time. Oh, wow.
1: Now, going back behind the scenes with Wizard Magazine, apparently believing in the concept of if you can't beat them, join them, John Warren, who is the creator of the Overstreet Price Guide, which was the absolute go-to source of the price of your comics before Wizard, has now joined the Wizard staff as the senior Price Guide editor. So, Wizard... Was was basically the los angeles lakers of comics journalism at this time wait why am i making a sports reference on a comics podcast well there's fast-breaking news from the ever-expanding seamus empire because collector's sports look magazine is announced as the first new addition to the wizard press publishing slate and a promotional flyer book is included in this issue along with a two-page ad did you write that or was that out of the magazine the, the Lakers line. Oh, no, that's
0: me. That's me. Oh, I was going to say, because if you know anything about basketball in the 90s, it wasn't the Lakers, my friend. It was the Bulls. Just putting that out there. Still yes,
1: like, I'm you. only speaking of nowadays from whatever I hear about sports tangentially on other podcasts. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: sure, <laughs> sure. You're like, you're like you know, Magic Johnson was great. I'm like, that was before that. I don't know. I'm just teasing. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm a little snarky <laughs> tonight. But there you go.
1: Now, I got to read this quote here. As they're describing what Collector's Sports look is going to be all about, they mention that it will have the depth of coverage Wizard fans have long enjoyed, plus the Wizard reputation for irreverence and wit promises to deliver a whole new attitude to the sports and non-sports card and collectibles marketplace. And uh, there's actually a whole letter mission statement kind of from Garib Sheamus himself. And I won't read the whole thing here, but I do like what he says here. Two years ago, there was a dream called Wizard, the guide to comics, a magazine devoted to the imagination, the art, the artistry, and just plain fun of collecting and reading comic books. Millions of people read them every day. Day, just as millions of people collect sports and non-sports trading cards and have for a hundred years <laughs> in fact the sports collectible markets become the equal in art artistry and imagination and exciting products it offers of the comic industry so that's kind of what they're talking about here why they're doing it but the best part is on the back they have basically a you know one page ad sports look it's the greatest marriage since peanut butter met jelly catch it in october oh <laughs>
2: uh, he's called the big cheese for a reason right
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> Big cheese ball. <bowl. laughs>
0: <laughs> Please cut that out. If you ever want to be on our show, I don't want to insult.
1: Well, and I feel like, Gareth, if you ever come on the show, we have to know what your idea was behind this. I mean, obviously you saw that there was a place, again, Sports Illustrated, maybe not the hippest magazine in the world. had been around for a while. But this magazine, I'll tell you, you know, I, I was tempted to buy an issue and I still may in the future. But it ran basically for for a year. From 1993, the end of 93, until 1995.
0: At this time period, I was actually subscribed to either sports illustrated for kids or regular sports illustrated at the time and i never and i was a huge basketball fan and football fan and i
1: never heard of this magazine before never not one i actually saw there was a reddit thread and somebody and also something called like collectors.com and people were asking about it they're like does anybody know about this magazine you know like because i remember seeing it and i bought it like other people like oh yeah i heard about it but it was never." In my area but it had like major sports figures on the covers during its run it had nolan ryan and charles barkley and ken griffey jr and Shaq, michael jordan you know like it had big coverage on there and some people said yeah it was pretty funny somebody described it as mad magazine and sports illustrated combined <laughs> <laughs> but no there was no mention of wizard like nobody knew because these are sports fans right they don't understand right. they're, they're not they're not like oh, i came from a comic book magazine they're like well, i don't know what that is But also, the early issues featured Spider-Man or Superman or Wolverine on the bottom of the cover. And they would actually say, like, also check out our non-sports price guide. So it wasn't 100% sports. It was a trading card magazine with an emphasis on sports.
0: Okay. (gasps) Interesting.
1: Now, something else, I don't know if you've ever heard of this. This is an article called A Mighty Magnorficence. Oh boy. Rolls it off the top. Yeah. They're discussing the newest collaboration between writer Mark Evanier and cartoonist Sergio Aragonis, speaking of Mad Magazine. Now, they had been producing Grew the Wanderer together since the 80s. So, Michael, have you ever seen a Grew the Wanderer comic book? Does that ring a bell, Jody?
2: i've heard of it i've got quite a few comics i've never bought a copy of grew the wanderer it's not something i really see in the quarter bin all that much i think it must have been a direct market court sort of book but i've heard of it but it's not anything i'm too familiar with personally
0: you could just add in a cricket sound
1: for me because I, no <laughs> <what this> <laughs> I have no
0: idea what this it's is no idea what this is it's
1: that weird era like it feels like if you were a teenager in the 70s and like early 80s you loved sword and sandal fantasy conan was like the biggest thing ever and it's a conan. Conan parody it's the same as like Cerebus that we've talked about it was a rip off of Conan comics and that, that was just such a huge thing for a period and it totally escaped our generation but now because superheroes are the big business in 93 they're introducing Magnor who is a quote parody but not a parody of traditional men in capes and so in comparing Magnor to Gru Evanier states quote his stupidity is on a grander scale <laughs> also revealing that Magnor mantra is quote with a great costume comes great responsibility
0: yeah the, the only
1: groo that I know is
0: from the minions
1: for my children that's about I it Did <laughs> they steal it Did they steal it from this groo?
0: I bet you they did. It wouldn't surprise me. That's a, that's a really, really odd coincidence, if you ask me.
1: But we need to hear from the Gru fans out there. I think they're the same people who enjoyed reading Hagar the Horrible in the Sunday paper. Anybody? There's
2: definitely a similarity there between Gru and Hagar.
1: No doubt. This next article, Ghost Rider, is not an article about the Marvel character or the 90s PBS kids detective show. Ghost Rider! Word! <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) anyway (laughs) but instead it's a follow-up with writer John Ostrander who along with artist Tom Mandrake turned the Spectre from a hard-to-relate-to God of Vengeance into a surprise hit comic as they're reporting over the last year now I remember Michael several issues back we kind of scoffed at the concept when it was originally announced we said you know he was great in Kingdom Come eventually but the Spectre was never a big book it wasn't a big deal and apparently Apparently that was the same opinion that other veterans in the industry, including Mike Gold, for example, who told Ostrander, quote, any competent writer could do two or three good issues of the Spectre, but it would just become formulaic after that. That the character was just too powerful to keep interesting. And Ostrader says, I told him he was wrong, and I like to think we've proved the point. So I find it really fascinating that the Spectre became kind of this critical hit, at least. Now, Jody, again, in the DC universe at this time, you're by it a lot. Was the Spectre one that appealed to you? Did you notice it becoming a big deal book? No,
2: absolutely not. There's not anything that I would ever... I've never been a Spectre guy at all, really. It's just the... I don't know if it's the spiritual, mystical sort of aspect of the DC universe has never really appealed to me all that much. I mean, I I think I have a couple of... Specter issues here and there i love john astrander uh i like his uh, suicide squad work a lot of other things he's written i've enjoyed i won't say much about tom mandrake not not one of my favorites but me personally no the specter's never he's always been on the uh, a fringe hero for me
0: so here's my theory on this and we just kind of teased it with the hal jordan thing hal jordan eventually becomes the specter yes and i wonder if they're trying to push the Spectre now because of what they know is coming soon with him becoming the Spectre as his like punishment for being... Ven- or,
1: or was that years and years that's later? That's what that- I'm saying. I think that's at least like two or three years out from all that stuff.
2: Now, I did have some of the Hal Jordan Spectre runs because I liked Hal Jordan, but that didn't happen until
0: years. Years. Until years. Okay, yeah. So, as a concept, like I think the idea of the Spectre is a cool concept and if you think of like, the Hand of God or like kind of like pulling the string or somehow like in the background is cool kind of like the phantom stranger which i think is a really cool character too but like mm-hmm. to be its own book it has to be something that is massive and ties into the entire dc universe i feel like if it's just kind of like a small little subplot thing for just that character it doesn't do it for me But if it like if it pulls the strings of the whole universe that's kind of interesting to me in my mm-hmm.
1: opinion Well, and I think that's the traditional take, but what John Ostrander did here is he decided to make it a more personal book while somehow mixing in those outlandish fantasy elements. And so what I did is, when I heard this was a critically acclaimed book, according to Wizard, I went on Comixology, I bought the first eight issues, and so I was excited because I was like, okay, what is this about? And you remember, this is the era of the Sandman and Vertigo books, and actually in this article even, they said, why didn't this become a Vertigo title? Because it very much fits in that universe. And he basically said, well, the editor for our book was not a Vertigo editor so it just stayed in the main line and you know this doesn't have superheroics it doesn't have anybody tying into it instead it has a very timely for the time anyway plot line about AIDS and so he gets involved with this woman who has AIDS and then there is a serial killer who is going out to murder women who have AIDS he's like oh they're, they're intentionally giving the men they sleep with AIDS and so it's like this really like you know at the time it's like whoa you know this is very adult this is very intense plus it takes the Spectre's mission of punishing evil, but adds on the element of but also understanding it, which expands what he is up to. So you get this stuff where he's in a lot of ways. He, he I always thought of him, you know, as maybe like the Doctor Strange or something. I've, I found him to be more like Ghost Rider, where he's out like punishing and he's, he's uh, you know getting vengeance on people. And what he does is he like jumps in through the criminal's eyes, and that he has these battles in their minds. Escape and that's where he could do all his crazy stuff you know turn his mouth into a giant flood or whatever's gonna happen you know and but if the person's will is very strong he loses power but when he's outside he usually goes back into his human form and he's not the specter and he's just you know his his cop persona and then he's maybe a little bit more vulnerable even though he's mostly a ghost and so it's it, you know, it has all these these different levels to it which it's very consistent in the writing it's a mature book you know the theme are mature but i was actually really impressed by it and tom mandrake's art jody you weren't a fan for this book it felt like it fit very well because it's so wild and the, the visuals were you know you could just kind of do anything
0: adam can i ask you a question yeah so i'm looking i'm looking at this article and it says you know uh, you know john ostrander wrote this book right is that his picture in the in the article yeah
1: he looks like a college professor doesn't right he?
0: I was, he was like a college professor like on a yearbook photo. <laughs> he's, got his, he's got his like collared sweater on with his like blazer and his hair is kind of like in a bouffant of some sort. This <laughs> really like, like
1: charcoal. he kind got of a background. It's hilarious. Like wow. he's this is college professor photo. Well and it says he came from the theater so he was a playwright and then he got introduced to writing comics and took off and was popular. So yeah. That's where the
0: hair comes from. That makes sense. <laughs> you
1: know the Spectre? Pretty good read from this era but staying in the spooky territory okay uh there is an article here called on the edge of their seats and it's asking comics professionals to explain when or if they've ever been scared by a comic book story and it's kind of a letdown because most of them are claiming i've never been scared you know or they, they claim it's a more highbrow you know kind of terror so for example the late Dwayne McDuffie's response proves that he he was probably quite a thinker but maybe not a lot of fun at parties because this is what he says the scariest thing going on in comics is the idea that physical force and violence is the sole solution to problems and that wit and intelligence is not it's an overwhelming trend that says moral correctness comes out at the point of a gun and it's probably scarier than any of the monsters we are creating to frighten people I was like, okay. I'm reading. Dude, comics. We,
2: just, we just wanted to know if you were scared. We didn't need to think philosophical <laughs> here.
1: <laughs> yeah, so going pretty deep there. And then um, there's another guy here. Again, like I say, some of them just didn't take it seriously. There's this guy... Named is Liefeld
0: in there? Please tell me Liefeld. He is there.
1: not involved. Oh, no, bummer. he could not be reached for comment. He's like, I don't get scared. <laughs> but Bill Neville, the artist for ElfQuest, New Blood, says, Superman number 75 scared me because so many people were buying it. And I was horrified that the first exposure many people were having to modern comic storytelling was such a vacuous example. Oh, Oh, you want to know what makes a story scary? That's an entirely different question. <laughs> yeah and, and he takes it on to basically say and although i don't get scared by it seeing a villain like the punisher marketed as a hero does make me ill at ease you know so it's just like everybody's just like there's all these characters and there's not good storytelling that's what scares me now last one here i found this very interesting just from a perspective of what a difference 15 years makes uh there's a comics historian named lawrence watt evans and he says i don't think anything scares me anymore though that early issue of sandman with dr d in the diner came close when i was a kid though believe it or not groot the thing from planet x who appeared in an early issue of tales to astonish number 13 i think scared the heck out of me groot was a giant walking tree who showed up and announced he'd be taking a town from earth back to planet x to experiment on Kirby art great gloomy coloring villagers with torches killer trees (laughs) but groot only says i am groot or at least, is that just like a retcon they did in the future? I'm I mean... pretty sure, yeah. So this is this is like an old, probably Stan Lee book when they were doing right. monster books, you know, in the 50s. Or, or very early 60s, you know? So it's kind of cool that he was mentioning Groot back when nobody knew who Groot was. Yeah, I mean, Super,
2: super obscure, very deep pull, especially for the time.
1: I mean, yeah. nobody knew who the Guardians
0: of the Galaxy were until about 2011, so it's like...
1: <laughs> Now, speaking of super teams that nobody knows about, uh, this article, (laughs) Tribal Thoughts, is an interview with Larry Stroman and Todd Johnson, who created Tribe for Image. We talked about them a while back, how they had hundreds of characters they were planning to introduce to their universe, but they got dropped from the big eye, as we'll put it. And now they're self-publishing through their company, Axis Comics. Now, Stroman and Johnson claim to have sold more than a million copies of Tribe number one making tribe quote the best-selling african-american comic book in history take that milestone now they didn't last with image you know image said you know you're too much competition for us we need you off our label Uh, but johnson here says quote it's a hardcore tough business arena it's not the camaraderie i thought it would be you gotta have your paperwork right so what they're doing actually is kind of taking tribe to the next level in terms of it's not just a comic because they're jumping heavily into merchandising with a trading card set that steals Defiant's idea of turning all nine cards in a binder page into a comics page. They're also releasing a line of clothing called Rumbleware. Now, this was a concept that was originally going to be a company inside the Image universe that would manufacture all the outfits for the super beings like Youngblood. They specifically state not for Spawn because, quote, no human could make that one. They also discuss the possibility of TV and movies because every creator thought that selling a million comics immediately meant you were destined for dominance of all media. You know, they thought a the crossover was inevitable. Everybody knew who you were when you sold a million comics. Tribe, anybody? Tribe?
2: I heard of it, but at the time, no. This is not anything that would have piqued my interest. I, I will say, you know, reading uh, their plans for Rumbleware and for cards. Through twenty six episodes of this show, I'm sure you guys have realized there's so much you know, with the success of, of Image and Valiant. There's so much putting the cart before the horse and so many of these companies, like, yeah, we're gonna have cards, we're gonna have shirts, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do that, and there's no there's no fan base there. I mean, yeah. I guess in this case you could say they sold a million copies, but I don't know one person that owns one.
0: You know what's funny, like there's something you said in there, Adam, where it says that they were too much competition for for image. That doesn't 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 make any sense though like why would they be competition would it be that it's a different universe competition like
1: Well, more more so what it is, is that, you know, we kind of talked about this last episode was that Image was expanding too quickly. So they were losing their market share for the main founders of Image by bringing on new talent and new books, because now other books have the Image logo. Other books are now selling a million copies like this one. That takes away from, you know, the seventh, eighth, ninth issue of Spawn or Liefeld, if he had gotten out uh, more issues of Youngblood at some point.
0: More than one issue of anything?
1: yeah so so it's that type of thing where they it basically they decided yeah yeah it's it's diluting our market share, so you know we we can't do that oh well, I see I understand now more lofty aspirations, just like Jody was describing, are found in this article, and Michael, I'm sorry we're returning to taking its cues, which brings us back into the world of Q unit from Harris comics <laughs> <laughs> you,
0: you you think I would ha just when I'm out, you pull me back into this stuff.
1: <laughs> this this carl alstetter and robert napton who are the creators of q unit they have these delusions of grandeur uh to quote han solo uh, it stated quote of course the selling point of the series is the story which is truly complex but not overly convoluted according to the rep from harris comics quote the complexity isn't in your face the intricate reality of the q units universe is very accessible which has proven completely false Not only by our previous review of the first issue, would you consider that accessible, Michael? It was so confusing, and it's just no it's gobbledygook yeah and it goes on in this article it's really just the two creators trying to explain all the backstory and characters in what essentially reads like the ramblings of an eight year old on the playground trying to convince his friends why his imaginary character can beat theirs you know he's like and he was part of this world and then they got these implants in their heads and these guys control them and then (laughs) also this other guy they abducted him and he's a human but then he got enhanced and this stuff Happens and then that guy goes over there and he meets. Yeah, no. It's just so deep. They thought about it way too much and they can't express it slow enough. They're like, we got to give it all to you so you get it. So this issue also features preview pages from Q Unit number zero, which is before the first issue that we read. And Jody, how would you describe this art? Hot garbage. It's really rough. Like the uh, the art was sort of okay in the issue that we read. It was just very busy, but this stuff. It just looks unfinished. It looks like you know that you're you're drawing in the back of your notebook in junior high. Like that's the style. Even before the preview, they had to provide a few paragraphs to explain what a Q unit is.
0: What is it? Please tell me. Please. Okay,
1: you you need the clarification. We could do this. Q stands for Quetrock a figure for Braxian mythology who served the god Simec until he was captured by the god Troc. Rather than accept death, Quintroch agreed to serve his new god. Thus, Quintroch is a word associated with one who trades loyalties in order to avoid death. The Q-unit members must fight or die, subject to an explosive charge implanted in the translator units in their brains. Each Q-unit is supervised by a synthetic being serving the Braxian regime called a recognizer. q unit missions are hazardous frequently hopeless and always exciting
0: okay that is my fault that is my (laughs) fault i regretted asking immediately and now whatever you just said is going to be burned into my brain for all eternity. It's like oh. somebody
1: tried to explain Game of Thrones to me. I had zero interest and in people like, and then this house, and this house. What? I don't I know. Sorry, that's too much. And you might say it created something of a crisis in our minds. And uh, this next article titled Crisis Situation is a reflection on the success maybe of dc's crisis on infinite earths in quote cleaning up their multiverse continuity now we tasked jody since he's our dc guy also from way back he's gonna break down the legacy of this event and, uh, and he's gonna share also the opinions of brian cunningham who was writing this article so what can you tell us about crisis on infinite earths jody
2: well you know the article starts with pre-crisis and kind of explains some of the problems with dc pre-crisis um, you know pre-crisis uh as the article explains, there was just too many Earths. There was an Earth-1. That's where the normal Superman, Batman, those guys lived. And you had Earth-2. That's where the Justice Society lived. And you had Earth-3. And then you had Earth-X. And there's the Charlton Earth. I think that was Earth-4. As the article states, it was very confusing. Although, I would say, from what I have read, this kind of stuff kind of outdates us, as our age, anyways. Kind of outdates me a little bit. But from what I've heard... Uh, and what I've read, people have said, no, I, I didn't find it confusing in the least. But apparently somebody thought it was confusing. So what they did was they held an event called The Crisis uh, by Marv Wolfman and, and George Perez, who were just coming off their new Titans run. So, I mean, that's a, that's a home run right there. What they attempted to fix in The Crisis was going down to One Earth and kind of condensing dc's history now i would say at this point when in 86 when crisis happened that was to commemorate dc's 50th anniversary so they've got 50 years of history Mm -hmm. behind them so to try to make that all fit this was at least you know over the years this was kind of their way to make everything kind of fit together but again with crisis they decided to wipe out all those earths go down to one earth it went back to they wiped out supergirl they they wiped out the flash And they decided to start again with a new continuity. So after Crisis, the first really big book that came out of Crisis was John Byrne's Man of Steel miniseries, which attempted to uh, kind of make Superman relevant again. I am a big fan of, I'm actually a big fan of pre-Crisis Superman books. But honestly, you could read any book from probably 1963 to 1986, and they're interchangeable. There yeah. nothing happens in those books at all, <laughs> which is both kind of fun and kind of like, oh my god, these are lame. Nobody's reading these. And you look at sales charts from the time and super and this is in the 80s when books are selling great and Superman is barely in the top 100. And that's yeah. bananas to me. Considering the exposure he had had with his movies and, you know, being on spinner rack, being readily accessible, every, every kid knows Superman. But all right. These were, these were garbage books, to some. So John Byrne went to fix that, and with his Man of Steel miniseries, he went on to fix such things as uh, never having him be Superboy, not becoming Superman till he moved to Metropolis, no Supergirl, his parents were alive. Wait, and
0: his parents were dead pre-crisis. Yes, I didn't realize. I thought they didn't. I thought they they did that after, like they retconned that. I didn't realize that they, like, did, did they kill him because they killed him in the movie? Or is
1: it just, like... No, no, they, no? I mean, they were just dead from, like, the very beginning. Whenever they got into his backstory, his parents had died. they I mean, it, you gotta think, like, he was coming around in the 30s. Yeah, people didn't live that long back then, Michael. <laughs> you know?
0: really? I always thought Martha Kent, at least, was always kind of, like, just there as, like, his moral compass kind of a thing. I didn't realize that she was dead for a time back then. I didn't realize. Well, I for, I, either I forgot or I didn't know. That's interesting,
2: If I remember correctly, I think his parents' death might have been the catalyst for him to move to Metropolis and become Superman, if I remember correctly. But if there's an issue that it happened, I couldn't tell you what issue it is. It wasn't like a big deal, you know? But some other post-Crisis fixes that uh, they decided to change. Georgia Perez uh, had a new take on Wonder Woman where she essentially didn't exist before Crisis. I, I would like to add most of the DC world before Crisis it was kind of a cutoff point. Everything was kind of new. So Wonder Woman didn't exist before that time. Flash, he was still dead, but now it was Wally West. It was uh, Barry Allen's nephew. And then you had guys like Hawkman who really was confusing but there was no golden age hawkman at this point they had kind of combined carter hall who was the golden age hawkman and cater hall the silver age hawkman into kind of one being and there was a a hawk world series i I have to tell you i'm not real versed on the history of hawk world or excuse me hawk world hawkman but uh i know it is one of the notoriously confusing backstories oh yeah hawkman is is
0: very confusing holy moly
2: right So you guys read this article, right? I guess the main crux of this article was that Brian Cunningham, the writer, who I might like to add, he actually left Wizard to become an editor at DC for quite a while, which is kind of funny. But the article states what what its main problem is, is that all these fixes that DC had made before the crisis, some of them were starting to rear its head again. Like, there was a new Supergirl, who wasn't Kryptonian and she was alien in nature. That was kind of a way to get around her Kryptonian roots. But nonetheless, we had a new Supergirl. Um, Dove from Hawk and Dove was back. And another problem that the article had was, what are we supposed to do? Just forget the 50 years of stories that happened before 1986?
1: Yeah, well, and I thought it was interesting, Jody, about that. Marv Wolfman and George Perez are both interviewed briefly in there, and they said, oh, yeah, well, we consider doing one more issue that kind of addressed all the things that they've been undoing in the last few years leading up to it. So I thought, they're like, yeah, we, we figured it would just make it even muddier and even more confusing, but, you yeah, we did feel like that was needed. But also I think it's interesting to the point, too, is uh, we've had people on the podcast that said, I didn't know what Crisis was until I read wizard like i learned it there because they mentioned here that they never reprinted or collected in a trade crisis it was kind of like they did crisis on infinite earths you could get the back issues but it wasn't like this thing they were hanging their hat on like this was the beginning you got to go back here and so uh it, it dc wasn't pushing it they even asked a dc rep and they're like no we don't plan to collect it and they don't for quite a while That's i have The trade, you know, with the Alex Ross painted cover and all that, it's it's beautiful. But they really took their time on making that something that mattered. Maybe because they didn't want to be beholden to what they had attempted to do, you know?
2: I also have the same trade, and I think that has a 1999-2000 cover date on it. it. So it was a good... Fifteen years after it came, come, almost fifteen years before they managed to reprint that. I, I would like to add, my copy is uh, signed by George Perez and Marv Wolfman. Wow,
0: really? Well, wow, that's yeah. pretty cool.
2: I've, I've always enjoyed Crisis over the years. I gave, a, gave it a reread uh maybe two, three years ago. I think it's always been a favorite of mine, but. When this issue of Wizard was, was printed, I wouldn't have known anything about it, either maybe just tangentially through a couple of crossover issues I had as a kid.
0: But The only thing um, you really, I mean, I think at this time in our lives, the only thing you could possibly even link your mind to when it came to Crisis and Infinite Earths if you hadn't read it was just that picture of Superman holding Supergirl kind of thing. Like that's mm-hmm. the only image that I ever knew existed about. And it's that been story.
1: referenced so many times as homage covers, yeah, uh, a million times, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so it's it's really interesting. You know, I I enjoy it as a read. I to me, there's too many new characters in there to keep the story going with the monitor and the anti-monitor, and then you know Lila or whatever her name is, you know, and then the Pariah and like all those guys <laughs> that are kind of the driving parts of the story that that convolutes it for me. I wish they could have chosen existing characters to drive that
0: i've read it twice and the first time that i read it it took me a really long time to get through the trade because it's just kind i was like bored at points because there's just so much going on and it's such a thick dense story that you're just like Alright, where are we going? Like just get through it. And there's so many cool characters that you see just drawn but have no speaking parts in the whole thing and I'm like, Oh, I wanna know what they're doing. I wanna and, and you don't know, you don't have and those instead we
1: get more Lady Quark.
0: Yeah, I don't oh, need Lady no.
1: Quark. <laughs>
2: As the years have gone on and I've gotten more of an appreciation for Silver Age and Bronze Age books, like I said, I've read it within the last two or three years. I do have more of an appreciation for some of the, the characters and some of the art. I will say two, two points I wanted to make. Uh, one, did you, reading the article, did you get the sense that Cunningham was kind of annoyed at the fact that they were kind of going back to some of these things that they had, quote, fixed? before the crisis, like Supergirl. It seemed like an annoyance that they were going back to some of these things, but, I mean, honestly, did nobody ever expect them to bring Supergirl back at some point?
1: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, definitely. he it, That's the tone of the article. It's like, well, they didn't really fix anything because they didn't stick with it, so...
2: Which at this point if you're if you're reading current DC comic books, you know, you look back this article's almost 30 years old. This is almost laughable at this point because right. they've they've had almost two hard resets at this point as right. far as getting rid of things. So it's like, boy, if you had a problem with this, just hold on to your hats.
0: And they're about to do a third. January 4th is the end of DC's Death Metal and it's supposed to literally reboot the universe where they're jumping into what's called Future State and it's all like Futuristic superheroes and all the characters you know are going to be gone, like um, gone.
1: Well, yeah. and, and they didn't have to wait till modern times either because we're going to cover it in just a, a month or two. Probably it's going to be zero hour comes out in nineteen ninety four, which was basically Crisis on Infinite Earths two. You know, like we're doing it again. We're trying to fix some stuff, get rid of some people. But speaking of Brian Cunningham, Jody, thank you for that. The toying around section for the past few issues has been pretty quiet. There hasn't really been a lot of big toy news. And so Brian Cunningham's been reporting on stuff here and there. But in this issue in particular, he's reporting on superhero costumes being big business for Halloween, mentioning that the X-Men are the hot new costumes for 1993, in addition to Wolverine, which like everybody for like 93 to 95, there's just Wolverines everywhere. And into the modern times, uh, there was a Storm costume being produced, which I thought was pretty cool. I never saw any girls dressed up as Storm, but I think it would have been neat. I would be like I I got to talk to that girl. Hello, hi. <laughs> but then Spider-Man and Batman costumes continue to be the reliable sellers, but they say Superman, who is also a mainstay, has grown even more popular due to all the media coverage of his death storyline. Although one costume company rep reveals the one who trumps them all. He says, quote "Ninjas have always been our number one selling costume. Ninjas, man, unstoppable."
0: Yeah, but I mean, this picture of this guy in this Superman costume, (laughs) I don't know if I would want to be caught dead in this superhero costume. It's pretty, pretty rough. (laughs) <laughs> it makes me uncomfortable for the for the person wearing it.
1: Yeah, well, see, like, but for Halloween, like 1989, I was not Batman. I was Superman, and my mom got one of those patterns and made me a full Superman outfit. You know, right. like with spandex. But you and were seven years old. This picture, of this man, is looks like he's about twenty five years old. <laughs> But uh, speaking of adults in costume, Michael, why don't you take us into Heroes in Motion.
0: So in Heroes in Motion this month, our pal Andy Mangles reports that Season 2 of X-Men on Fox will feature appearances by Mr. Sinister, Colossus, Omega Red, Alpha Flight, Cable, and more. Plus, Fox is considering a spin off show titled Captain America and the Avengers, which would feature War Machine and Thunderstrike instead of Iron Man and Thor. We don't get Avengers Earth Mightiest Heroes until... 2010 a long way away yeah i didn't even know that they were even considering a captain american avengers show back then
1: yeah i mean they had the video game so they must have thought the x-men video game was popular then we made you know a different tv series and that was popular so and they had captain america and the avengers maybe they thought well there's the promotion for it kids like captain america and the avengers and the arcades yeah so a little
0: random <laughs> trivia for you While we're talking about the Avengers, last issue, it was reported that Marvel was turning Avengers West Coast into a book called Power Works and had been renamed Force Works. What? What?
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you never read force works oh yeah i have, I have every issue they're, they're, you know i got a whole long box full of it i bought the first five like that was the only avengers <laughs> book i ever bought was force works you had you know julia carpenter spider woman on the cover u.s agent in a really stupid redesigned outfit really what now you guys I... know there's a force works cartoon right what this what? cartoon this I'm, I'm breaking stupid. news 30
0: years later
2: this war- that I, i'm guessing that this cartoon that they had in development probably became the force works cartoon never seen an episode of it but i did have a collector's cup i once got from a kmart (laughs) i believe it had iron man war machine sentry maybe spider woman and
1: i'm not sure if thor made the cut but it's well yeah what what i think they did jody was that was the iron man animated series was basically force works you're right yeah because that was that was his team and scarlet witch was on there and everything yeah so that that was definitely inspired by force works i think they were trying to have synergy but it was called iron man okay you want to
0: laugh they brought force works back in 2020 and called it force works 2020 it was a three Part miniseries that dropped on February twenty sixth. I have been to the comic book store every single week since the end of the shutdown. I have never seen issues one, two, or three on a single Marvel rack ever. So I because it's a if... hot
1: seller, Michael. Because <laughs> you're not going to find them. It's huge. Yeah,
0: yeah, I'm sure. Wow. I mean, I'm looking at the first issue from '94. I mean, you know, U.S. Agent Alpha is not good, but the cover otherwise looks kind of cool. I don't yeah,
1: know. Yeah, it was I, intense. I enjoyed it, like I said, for those first few issues. Anyway. Yeah.
0: So, but, whatever. All right. Sure. Interesting. <laughs> but back to movies. Back to movies. So the director of what was then called Batman Three had just been announced as Joel Schumacher. It's revealed that the Riddler will be the villain and Robin will finally make his big screen debut, but Catwoman will not return. Though the possibility of a Catwoman solo film to shoot concurrent with Batman 3 is being considered, which we obviously know that that didn't happen. There's a different Catwoman movie that comes out years later that we'll leave for the future to talk about. It, honestly, it really always bummed me out that they did not bring back Michelle Pfeiffer for the third film. It was like such an easy get, but I almost feel like maybe they did that because... Michael Keaton wasn't going to be back and they were like to try to have her have different chemistry with a different Batman it may not have worked I guess I don't know
1: but well I, th- I think it really did have to do with the fact they were seriously pursuing her solo Catwoman movie and it was going to be like set in Las Vegas and she was going to be doing all this uh, vigilante stuff there and so it, it was a situation where I think it was just like yeah yeah we're, no, we're it's in development so we can't put her in the next movie because she's going to have her own movie and you know her story's done until that one starts. Plus, apparently, she had a different movie.
0: Yeah, so Michelle Pfeiffer, it's also revealed that she'll be co-starring with the Joker himself, Jack Nicholson, in a thriller
1: called Wolf. Have you ever seen this movie? I had a VHS copy that I tried to watch this Halloween. I got it at the thrift store, and when I put it in, it broke. So I never got to watch it. (laughs) I was like, man, no! I've always wanted to see it. It's like a Wolfman movie with Jack Nicholson, right?
0: Yes. Jody, have you seen this movie? No, I have not. Okay, I have seen this movie a couple of times. And going into it under the hype of, the Joker and Catwoman are going to be in a movie together? Well, I gotta see this movie. I watched it. It's fairly scary at points. I can't remember off the top of my head how Jack Nicholson becomes the werewolf. It's not the greatest movie of all time, but... I want to spoil the ending so bad for you guys.
1: <laughs> I don't care. Go for <laughs> okay. it. I, I don't
0: care. So at, at, somehow Jack Nicholson becomes a werewolf and he's going around and he's doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And Michelle Pfeiffer becomes his love interest. And he never bites her or scratches her. But she becomes a werewolf by falling in love with him. <laughs> And the movie ends with, like, she turns and, like, breaks the fourth wall and looks at the camera, and she's got cat eyes. Wow. And that's how the movie ends. Or, like, werewolf eyes, I guess you would say.
2: Like, thriller video? Kind
0: of like that? Kind of like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. It's one of those movies, if if you want to see it, just because it's, like, got two great actors in it sure you know don't go buy it though let's put it that way (laughs) unless you find it in a thrift store on a vhs that actually works yeah that's sure. but closing out on batman related news burt ward is writing a tell-all autobiography about his time playing robin that will contain steamy stories about a a lot of of outrageous things going on with the co-stars and our fans. You can look up the YouTube video of Burt Ward promoting the book on Late Night with Conan O'Brien. He could even get on Letterman. He could even get on
1: Letterman. It's Burt Ward in 1993. No. <laughs> like,
0: okay. Apparently it's very awkward. Surprisingly, Conan doesn't mention about his hilarious heist of the robin costume that happened in college ported on wizard a few issues back that's kind of funny have any of you ever
1: read this tell-all book of Bert wards no and, and seeing the interview i don't want to because no. he thinks he is so like funny he thinks that he's and everybody in the audience is just like Ugh, this is gross you know and talking about like all the women that they slept with on the road and getting chased by their boys Boyfriends and all this stuff and talking about Adam West. He's like, oh, I love Adam. I love Adam. But he did this and this. Ooh. And everybody's like, we don't want to hear this. You're ruining our hero. Right. You're
0: ruining the magic. Don't tell us about that Adam West. I don't want to know. I mean, we've all seen the pictures of like how snuggled up he is against all the female actors in the show. But that was, it was the 60s. It was just like, I don't know. Well, That's
1: Burt Ward's justification. It was the 60s. It was a different time. Yeah.
2: My kids have been doing a Batman 60s watch through I
1: think through that's
0: cool
2: two. and I tell you what watching that Conan O'Brien appearance it's it's besmirched me for uh for good I, I yeah. don't think I look at him the same unfortunately
0: yeah I don't know if I want to look it up I don't know I don't know if I, I don't know if, I don't know if I have it in me I'm don't do it on. Don't do it. Yeah, so Mangles also claims that he predicted in a previous issue that Sylvester Stallone would play Judge Dredd in a live-action adaptation of the British comic, and that is confirmed to be the case after 10 years of trying to get the film greenlit. It will now be filming for a December 1994 release in theaters. Adam, you're our historian of Wizard Magazine. Did Andy Mangles predict Stallone was
1: going to be Judge Dredd? and well, he was reporting that that was what was the rumor in Hollywood. So I don't know why you said, I predicted. It's like you heard it from someone, and then you wrote it here. You right. know, like... yeah, exactly. You so, think
2: that's something he's still, you think he's at, like, the bar, and he's telling people, you know, I predicted he was going to be Judge Dredd. <laughs> <laughs> we got to get out. him
1: on the show someday and ask. Andy, how important a uh, scoop was that for your career? <laughs> yeah, that, that really set him to the stratosphere, I'm sure. Oh, I got
0: breaking news for you. You'll never believe it. <laughs> Stallone is in a comic book movie and it's Judge Dredd. You'll see. Mark my words, folks. There we go. <laughs> Finally, there's an interview with John Cassier, who voices the Crypt Keeper on HBO's Tales from the Crypt, which was inspired by the EC comics horror books from the 1950s. Apparently, Cassier also voiced buster bunny in the later seasons of tiny Toon adventures
1: really that's weird he took over from the original voice
0: actor so oh interesting he provided the voice on the problem child cartoon as well which i didn't know exist did you know Me it existed? no i didn't know yeah, it. i i did
1: you saw it well, i remember wish kid i don't remember problem child the cartoon <laughs>
2: I think it was on CBS, but it had like maybe it was on at like a later time in the day mm-hmm. where it was preempted by college football sometimes. So I, I never saw it, but I knew it was around.
0: Yeah, interesting. And also was voicing the Crypt Keeper on Saturday morning animated series inspired by the violent
1: and vulgar HBO program. There was a Crypt Keeper cartoon yeah it was basically like you know tales from the crypt but with more innocent sort of creepy stories but just yeah it was like the goosebumps television series you know it's like it was scary if you were six is it like are you afraid of the dark
0: for saturday morning exactly there you go okay all right i didn't i never saw it i i missed that one on a side note Adam also performed with Kasir in an episode of his YouTube series, Retro Detention. So, if you haven't seen Retro Detention and you want to see Adam perform, this is the one to look for, guys. Check it out.
1: We got the original Crypt Keeper to reprise his role, so it was pretty awesome. That's pretty cool. That's
0: awesome. That's pretty cool, dude. And that is our Heroes in Motion.
1: All right, now we're going to jump into Guy Gardner's Gimmicks A Go Go. How
2: bizarre! i
1: Now, uh, the Spectre, we were talking about him earlier. He already is being lauded for having great stories, but he wants to sell a few more issues. So, with number 13, he's going to have a brand new glow in the dark cover. But unfortunately, DC's about to be shamed by their own lack of ambition because. Oh, look out. It's Arc Comics. They're back at it again, promoting a comic called Reader's Choice Number One that features three different glow-in-the-dark colors on the cover. They're stating this is the first time this has ever been done. You might recall they, in the past, did the first lenticular cover is what they claimed and now they're doing the first multicolored glow-in-the-dark cover. So that's all they live for. Art comics, they find the gimmicks that nobody's done, they get it done. Wolverine number 75 features a wraparound cover and a hologram as has been standard for the X-Books during the 30th anniversary. Frankly, it's getting a little old. It's not exciting you could have done a little bit more marvel for this grand 30th anniversary now profit number one is arriving from Rob Liefeld. It had been put on the back burner. He's finally releasing it with a coupon for a limited edition profit number zero. You know, Image made this happen. It became standard in the industry. He's doing it again now. I've read and discarded profit number one.
0: Did profit number two ever came out?
1: <laughs> yeah, oh, eventually. Yeah. Now it became an ongoing series. Now here's the thing: like he also appeared originally in Young Blood. There's profit number zero. I can confirm that this character is a zero. (laughs) Liefeld keeps talking about how the showrunner for the CW Arrow series has written a profit movie script that he believes will be made. Even back in the day when he was working with Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise was reportedly considering starring in a profit film. And Rob, nobody cares about profit. He's a roided out shatter star clone. He's got biblical undertones, which is lame. He only eventually had hype because Steven platt's art style appealed to people steven platt was the new todd mcfarland you had him drawing your prophet character and people were like oh he looks cool but then you read the comics you're like I, I, what do i care about this guy so yeah no prophet it's not gonna happen i'll eat my words in a couple years when we see prophet the movie you know on hbo max or something but oh, i just please. don't see it happening anybody jody prophet
2: no no
1: like you said nobody wants to be classified as a poor
2: man's shatter star. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Ha, ha, ha. Now, speaking of lame characters, Firearm number 1 from Malibu's Ultraverse also releases this month. But what's not mentioned in the ad, they have a full-page ad for it, is that Malibu financed a live-action short film version of the issue and packed a VHS tape in with the comic. Like, that's the height of gimmickry. So I don't <laughs> know how Wizard could miss that. Like, Malibu just wasn't promoting it well. I mean, look, ultimately, the character is just a cop with a gun who fights Ultra Power beings you know it was an ambitious idea of presenting it even though the story itself is not that interesting but it's on youtube and we'll share a link on social media you can watch the firearm film i love the idea i just wish it was cooler (laughs) (laughs) now jody i'm curious for you just you we're talking about gimmicks here were there cover enhancements or other types of gimmicks that appealed to you in the 90s that got you buying books
2: All of them. (laughs) holograms. You know, earlier you had mentioned the the 30th anniversary, the Wolverine 75, the 30th anniversary X-Men covers. I was all in on all of those. I loved those covers. I loved them. They were everything for me. I have a distinct memory. I think Excalibur is actually Excalibur 92. I believe was the first part of the Fatal Attraction storyline. And I remember... I have a memory of finding it on the spinner rack but not having the, I think it was 295 or 395 at cost. So I hit it up on the magazine <laughs> rack. I took it off the spinner rack, hit it up on the magazine rack and then came back and bought it probably six weeks later with
1: whoa,
2: pretty dusty, but it was still up there holograms glow-in-the-dark covers i i loved it i was the hook line and sinker
1: that's awesome like so many of us were so that's wonderful we look back and scoff at it now but we know we spent our money on all those things for sure <laughs> now speaking of gimmicks finally valiant introduces valiant vision 3d but it's not exactly 3d what does not exactly 3D mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me tell you, Michael. These books that feature Valiant Vision, they have a seal on the front that tell you they can be read with Valiant Vision glasses. What are Valiant Vision glasses, you ask? Well, they are polarized lenses that bring the red colors forward and push like the blue and darker colors back, giving the images a sense of depth. So the glasses are clear as how they look. Then you put them on and it's kind of little rainbow sparkles when the light shines in certain directions. But you look at the page and it really does work. Like, I, my buddy Garen, you know, he guested way back on episode 5 and he was singing the praises of Valiant Vision. So I was so excited to finally check it out. And I did this week and I was like, yeah! I mean, this is 3D without blue and red, which is always a hassle. And so it's like it, you get all the colors of a comic book. And in this Solar, uh, man, of the atom 29 that i have here it's actually really cool because they decided to do a lot of stuff like where he's going into virtual reality so a lot of stuff is like grid design and it looks really cool like the wireframe really helps everything to pop and especially reds like they said so solar is all red so he looks like he's just floating all over the comic it's really cool. really neat yeah so if nobody has uh, ever bought your valiant vision starter kit you know with the glasses and everything they You could go out and get it because it also works for other comics. So if you find another character like a Flash comic, that would look great. You know, the Flash (laughs) would look like he's running off the page.
0: Now, Let me ask you a question. When do comics start doing that defocus your eye kind of thing <laughs> like, like the episode of seinfeld. eye comics yeah you know like when the episode of seinfeld where like G- george goes into the bathroom takes his shirt off and he like defocuses his eyes to see like a sailboat when do we get those i want to know that's
1: that's right around this time i mean that's like 94 95 i think is when that really was yeah. hitting its stride you know but yeah you just got to look at when mall rats came out and you're like yes. okay mall rats made it a point yep. okay so all right well michael we've talked Talked about all the gimmicks that got the hype, but we gotta talk about two other guys who get the hype and the comic company that they are all about, so take us into Jim and Todd's hype machine.
0: We start out with a carryover from Magic Words. A reader asked jokingly if Forge from X-Men went over to Image. Could he make something so Image would be on time? Ooh, I see what <laughs> they did there. Oh, that's kind of snarky. I get it. All right. Um, and Wizard answers, he's good, but he's not that good. <laughs> Forge is a pretty cool X Men character. He's actually really, I like that character a lot. Speaking of X Men, the rumor of a Wildcats X Men crossover has been denied by Jim Lee, who says unequivocally no, to tell the readers that would be the biggest disservice you could
1: do to them. So he does want us to get our expectations up for Wildcats X Men crossover. It happens eventually, but not right now while he's still rising in his esteem does it really yeah because don't the wildcats i mean like Grifter, They go to wildstorm but i think it happened just before he sold to dc let me check here real quick wildcats x-men yep there it is wow uh 1997
2: 1998 yep, that's what i was gonna guess i thought that sounded about
1: right well wow, that's pretty good I, you guys are better than
0: me I, I i find that so surprising so theoretically grifter's been in Three different companies.
1: Well, I mean, he wasn't—he wasn't sold to Marvel. It was just a collaboration, right? But he's a—but he's appeared in a Marvel book, you know. That's kind of
0: well.
2: Just, was he in one of those Deathmate books too, where he would have been in an evaluation? Oh,
1: book? there oh, you go. Wow. That too. Hey, Grifter man, he's bringing the universes together.
0: Yeah, that's pretty cool. Wow, interesting. Returning to Magic Words, a reader states that at a los angeles comics convention todd mcfarland asked those in attendance if you ripped off the cover of a book and read the story and looked at the art would you still buy it if so you got an extra if not you fell for a gimmick wizard says he speaks the truth
1: so that's pretty good you know because that that that's what they make a big deal about at image is yes like they did some gimmick covers but like a lot of the work was no our art is the gimmick that was kind of their mantra right it's like people are following our art we don't have to do the cover enhancements we sell a million copies because we draw stuff that looks cool so i think that was his point of view because yeah spawn never had gimmick covers ever
0: no i mean never they just just did the homage to chadwick Bozeman and todd McFarlane drew spawn as chadwick Bozeman without the mask on that mm-hmm. was really cool and they did like three or four different versions like a black and white version a color version and then like a version was had like nothing on it just the picture which was pretty cool but the, i mean other than that i can't think of a lot of gimmick covers even today that are image books so that's cool finally wizard news reports Liefeld leaves Extreme Studios, well, for nine months at least, just to work on drawing Youngblood. I can run a business and I can do comic books, but I can't do both. I need to take my work to the next level. That's what I'm doing. End quote. (laughs) Rob Liefeld. Sure, whatever
1: fine so, he knew good. how to draw he didn't know how to run a company he's like i'm out of here guys i'm out of here so back to the main meat of this section
0: in this issue jim lee is mentioned five times todd mcfarlane is mentioned five times as well bringing our total of jim lee to 157 times and todd mcfarlane at 139 times wow the fact that you've counted these guys so many times is just unbelievable and that is jim and todd's hype machine
1: all right well now we're going to take you into punisher's price guide Now, the Ray miniseries is named as a hot back issue due to Joe Casada exploding at this point as one of the top artists in the industry. He's working for everybody. Everybody wants Joe on their books. So, we're going to examine the value of the first issue of the Ray miniseries, which I have mentioned many times. You're probably sick of it. As a prize of my collection, I've even framed the copy I got signed by Joe Casada. Does anybody else care? Well, let's find out. We're going to determine if this book is a fire star having risen in value, a fire storm having stayed relatively the same, or a burnout having gone down significantly in value. Now, in 1993, the Ray number one had recently risen to a value of $7. Okay? And that, that's according to the Wizard Price Guide. Now on eBay, as of December 2020, it sells for $1.99. Uh, While well, a lot of the full miniseries run went for 7 dollars eight eighty nine cents. So sorry the ray number one, but you are a burnout.
0: But I'll give you one little thing better, just so you know. A CGC graded cover. Of that particular issue, the gold foil cover is $53
1: on eBay. Well, that's foil, though, you know? So, I mean, the, you got to count that into it. I, I didn't have an enhanced cover. They, it was not a gimmick cover, this 1991 first issue. But I did get mine signed, right? So you say, okay, what's my signed copy worth then? Well, an issue featuring the signatures of the entire creative team sold recently for about 20 bucks. But my copy is also well-read. (laughs) So, I'm imagining it would go for maybe $7 with just Joe Casada's John Hancock on it. Well,
0: I I don't know. I mean, the number one, the original cover, a 9.4 grade on CGC is $65 on eBay.
1: Now the one thing you have to look at is: Are you still looking at sold auctions, or what people are trying to sell it for?
0: I'm looking at sell, trying to sell for. I didn't. Yeah, it sold see, it so looks-
1: I I always go to the sold auctions in the filter. And that's where you see what it actually sells for. And you're like, Okay, yeah, that was nice. She wanted sixty three dollars for it. You got fifteen. You know, <laughs> you got fifteen. Jody, you said you've got some side comics in your collection. Are you someone that pays attention to the prices? Is it more sentimental value? What are some of the prized pieces you have
2: well it's not the nine rings of the wu-tang one that i <laughs> I'll-, I'll take your well-worn copy of uh the ray over that but you know I'm-, I'm not somebody that's ever really paid for signatures but if i go to a show and there's someone there that i really enjoy their stuff like uh, last year i happened to go to a, sh- a show in connecticut where i was able to get dan jurgens to sign my childhood copy of my death of superman trade paperback and that's something that really meant a lot to me and thought wow If I could go back and tell myself when I was, you know, 11 that someday the guy who wrote and drew most of this would actually sign it and I'd get to say hello to him, that's a big deal.
1: That's cool yeah i mean that that's ultimately what it should be about right there's people who are in it as a business and a lot of them started thinking about comics as a business in the 90s but for most of us yeah it's it just warms our hearts it takes us back that's why we're doing this podcast right the memories uh but michael speaking of the memories and the some of the stuff we like to uh trade on the schoolyard take us into gambit's deck of cards
0: So, we recently covered the entire Deathmate crossover event between Valiant and Image on the show. But did you know there were trading cards inspired by this overhyped mega event? Keeping the overblown promotional aspect of the series going, two different trading card sets were produced by two different card companies tops handled the set featuring art by the image crew while upper deck created a brand new subline for non-sports trading cards called pyramid to handle cards featuring the art by valiant no confirmation if the cards featured any holographic pyramids on the back or not
1: so one of our listeners who is very active on our instagram side of social media our 50 cent comic collector he let us know that he actually had some of these valiant trading cards so i'm curious to ask him if he wants to reach out to us and say hey so what did you think of the cards and you know did, did it come together for you did you even know there was a second grouping of cards because that's the crazy thing right it's just like upper deck is saying we're going to create a whole line because valiant is so hot and we're buying their license so then kids are going to want to buy non-sports trading cards from us and i just i don't think that worked out um, <laughs> i would love to know what other cards were printed under pyramid and how long they kept that going it's funny like valiant burned real bright
0: real fast and then they just vanished And then it took a long time, but now they're coming back, and I think they've kind of realized their niche now. And they have a pretty good following of ongoing comic readers and buyers, but, like, they burned real hot and, like, got real big and then all of a sudden just gone for a while. It's so, so funny and interesting. In other news, though... Topps created a second series of Batman the Animated Series trading cards that will feature scenes from the upcoming feature film, Batman Mask of the Phantasm, which we'll be covering in February for a Valentine's Day bonus episode, because... You know, it's a love story.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so keep an eye out for that for sure. That'll be something special. We've been wanting to talk about it for a long time. We decided, got to put it on the schedule.
0: And that's it for episode 26 of Wizards. Don't forget, we are now filming our Robin's Reading Rainbow comic reviews and posting the expanded version of the conversation that you hear on these main episodes as a video that includes actual comic book pages to give you the visual idea on the story we are describing. And we got a really cool one coming up. We're going to be talking about an Elseworld story called Superman Speeding Bullets. <laughs> So we're actually here to talk about one of my favorite Elseworlds stories of all time. And this is a story that, if you haven't read it, it's only 50 pages. It is a very quick read. I wish it was longer. It could be so much longer if they really wanted to. But it's very interesting. It's a lot of fun to read. So the backstory behind this book is that instead of kal landing in Kansas and being fi- found by the Kents, the Waynes find him just outside of Gotham City and they name him Bruce Wayne instead of Clark Kent and he grows up as Bruce Wayne and the origin of that starts from there. So the funny thing about this book right, the author and the artist J.M. DeMatteis I think it's pronounced uh-huh. and Eduardo Baratto or or, or Barretto? is that how you say it i don't yeah, even know Barretto. yeah so, yeah i
1: i don't know any other batman stories that they ever did well so yeah jam Diamatis, i know him mainly from marvel he did okay. a lot of writing over at marvel spider-man some pretty core stories but yeah but i, I don't recall him dipping his toes in a DC very often. Somebody's gonna tell us we're wrong, but he wasn't a name I associated with DC. And then when I was looking at the art in this book, I was like, the art looks very much like a DC house style, but Eduardo Barreto is not a name again that jumps out to be like, oh, he was on this book for X number of years so it was interesting it's really great art though but it was it was surprising i hadn't heard of him before
0: it's be- i really like the art it's beautiful it's well drawn the story is very interesting too how they kind of twist things on their head
1: yes this is one of my favorites too like there are a lot of elseworlds tales out there and i have plenty of uh, them me too I have, of I have a lot So few stack up to this, to the efficiency, like you said, if it's only 50 pages long, but it just, it hits every beat you want. It doesn't leave like a lot of stuff unanswered where you're just like, oh, well, they'd have to do a follow-up. No, like it, it gives you what you need to know about the character. And most of all, it answers that question, right? Because what always has set apart Batman from Superman you know people that say oh well I like Batman because he's just a guy right. he's just a guy who got himself to the peak of mental and physical perfection of humanity and that he goes out there and fights for justice so that there is that question what if Batman had superpowers yeah how would that change the game you know, and so you talked about the origin, obviously, so a different set of parents in this case, I feel like did make that big a difference, you know, either way, he had loving, nurturing parents who taught him. They talk about you know that Thomas Wayne was a little bit more of a taskmaster, he yeah. wasn't as loving as Martha Wayne, but overall, it wasn 't that big a deal, you know, like the parents side
0: but you know what's funny about that so so they they do say that that he's not as loving or affectionate or what have you, but he was fascinated with how this boy from another planet is so intelligent so naturally and he wanted to flourish that intelligence and push the kid the limit to see how much he could absorb and learn and honestly as as always alfred plays a very significant role even though it's only for moments and like there's a moment when they first find him, where Alfred goes, "I guess we're tr- canceling your reservation to some like big gala," and he makes like a funny quippy joke. And then there's moments where Alfred and, and you know Bruce Wayne, you know Kal-El Bruce Wayne, are just walking around Wayne Manor, and he's talking to him like he says his, his pal, and and like a friend and a confidant, and and kind of breaking up the the difference is between Martha being super, super loving and Thomas being super, super strict. And here's the interesting thing about this story. As opposed to Bruce Wayne of, of like, you know, continuity, he, they're always out and this and that, they kept this Bruce Wayne very much home and private and they'd only go out for what he said was a monthly Fancy dinner and a movie,
1: and and the reason being is the inciting incident in this story, very similar to our Bruce way that were you know the origin we've seen a million times. His parents do get killed; they get gunned down, but it's in their house. There's a break in to their mansion, and that is a moment where Bruce actually, in his rage, in seeing his parents killed. That's when his, you know, his heat vision kicks in and he shoots, you know, and burns the the intruder, you know, and that. But that at that moment he has a mental block. I'm going to correct you on that. that. Oh, really?
0: It. It doesn't oh, what did I miss? That. So it does happen in the alley. Oh, you're right. It li- later something happens. It
1: yes. Lives. Okay. Okay. I was conflating the two. You're right. another word i gotta get
0: a definition for conflater (laughs) oh great so basically it happens in the alley by joe chill but what happens is joe chill shoots bruce wayne and there's bullet holes all over his clothing and then the rage kicks in and the heat vision just goes and blasts joe chill in the face he doesn't die initially but they say they found him a couple blocks away Dead with his face all charred up and everything. And that's where the mental block kicks in.
1: Yeah. So Bruce spends all these years basically, yeah, just hiding out. He's known as this recluse. Yeah. And then, but yeah. And so he then Alfred says he's always trying to get him to go out to be a normal person again. He just doesn't feel a need because he you see he is obsessed with the news and the evil that is in the world he's like why would i want to go out there and participate in the evil but he doesn't remember all the details of his parents death he just knows the world's a bad place i don't want to go and then like i said (laughs) i jumped the gun (laughs) Uh these guys break into the mansion yeah now they're gonna rob bruce wayne and then that's where you know he has kind of this moment, you know, this clarity that comes through this breakthrough. And now, you know, he's realizes his powers again, he's like, wait a minute, I had powers, I killed the guy that killed my parents, like he, and he's like, Oh, and so he has this moment where he starts considering, okay, what could I do now, yeah. if I have this power, you know, and, and what can I do to clean up the world and make it? or at least make evil pay for the crimes that it commits in many forms through many people. So the funny thing about this is
0: he does sort of remember that he has some abilities. He says to the, to the guys breaking in, you can't hurt me. The bullets won't hurt me. Like he, he remembered that part, but he forgot the heat vision and the strength and all that other stuff that goes along with it. And even though it looks like in the comic that he killed those guys, they say that he didn't, like, he they got away. And then they go back to the crime boss, mm-hmm. who you only sort of see in silhouette with a purple jacket and a purple glove. And a and big that, smile. Covered a big the the smile.
1: Darkness. Just and the big, lips. Yeah. And,
0: um So, the funny thing about this thing that I, I keep saying the funny thing so, the costume on this particular Batman is one of my favorite batman costume designs i've ever seen and it's never been recreated
1: it's only been in this particular comic really so so has there not been an action figure because i know you have other elseworlds action figures they never made it
0: i've never seen this figure
1: ever ah. i wish there was I, yeah
0: I, i'd buy 10 of them <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah
0: i've never found this action figure i don't know why I don't know, maybe for licensing, they never did it, or maybe it just wasn't that much popular of a book at the time. It's, it's not super well known as like Gotham by Gaslight, you know, but this is so unique, but the, the, the way the, the, the bat symbol is it's, it's in sort of a similar crest to the Superman logo on the chest. He's got these cool little like ripples on the... On the, on the yeah, arm. he's got ridges
1: on the inside and on the... Yeah, yeah. it looks really, really cool. Which they kind Textually. of...
0: They sort of recreated in New 52 when they do like the zero year of Batman by, uh, by Greg Capullo. They, they give him that sort of a look on the side and on the arms, but it's only for a couple of issues, not super long.
1: Well, and the cowl is very much like the Nightfall Azrael armor cowl, but I think this is a version where if they had done this design for Azrael, people would have been like, okay, that's not over the top. It's not crazy. I think that that was what they were going for with the character. So that's why it was armor and had everything flying off it there, you know, but, but still like if they were just looking for a new Batman at the time, this would have been a fantastic design. To use. Oh, it's
0: such an awesome design. Even the boots have the kind of the ridges on them and the the face is fully covered. I wonder if they sort of tried to mimic that when they did Batman beyond because the face is covered, even the the mouth moves on the, in the cartoon. It's, it's interesting, but it's such a cool looking costume. And so he goes out in the world, and he's taking down the bad guys, but he's, he's Batman violence on kryptonite or on steroids, so to speak. <laughs> and he's super violent, and he you know, doesn't have any weapons, obviously. He, doesn't even, he just flies around and beats people up and blasts them with heat vision. And one of the biggest reveals you get is, so what happens is he... his company, Wayne Enterprises, is getting bought out by Lex Luthor. And Bruce Wayne comes in and says, no, 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 get out of here. You're not buying my company. I got this, and so on and so forth. And he also buys the Gotham Gazette and brings in Perry White and Lois Lane and a bunch of the big people that were in the Daily Planet that had gotten fired by Lex Luthor when he bought the Daily Planet and he wanted to make his own version of Daily Planet in Gotham City with real reporters and real people and Lois is out in the city she gets more or less kidnapped by Lex Luthor and then he throws her out into an alley when, he, when she wouldn't you know give in to his wiles I guess you would say Did you ever lay a hand on me oh it's such, a, it's such a good moment in the, in the comic and then she's kind of in the middle of you know a, a bad part of Gotham City and he Batman or Superman or whatever you want to call him, The amalgam uh, comes right through the concrete and protects her, but he beats them so violently and he blasts them with the heat vision. And he like really, really messes him up that you see Lois Lane and you hear in the narration that she's like, if the world needs this, this is a monster. Like, I don't want someone like this to be the protector. He's a, he's a monster. And then it kind of goes on where she becomes his like, I guess the word would be like a tent pole. Like she pulls him back from being. His conscience essentially. Yeah. She's teaching
1: him like you have a power, but you can use it in a more altruistic way. Yes, you can fight against justice, but it doesn't have to be killing evil, you know? Yeah.
0: And she becomes, you know, she brings him back to being some sort of humanity in a way. But now's where the big twist happens. We, they keep teasing that Lex was involved in some sort of explosion, but he lived. And as the as the comic goes on, you see Lex Luthor's wardrobe start to evolve from like a black suit to then he has purple gloves to a purple coat to a purple hat, and you're like, "Whoa, this is the Joker." And he pulls his own face off and reveals a white face with a with a red lips. And he, he, he reveals himself as the Joker. And what's very interesting about this moment is that he says after the incident, he was sitting home and just eating because he gets very, very fat. Like it's a fat Joker and a fat Lex Luthor. <laughs> it's kind of funny, but it, it works for the story. And you find out that, the joker and lex luthor are the same person and it's really really a cool reveal
1: yeah and i mean and obviously you know you're gonna have the showdown between super bat and you know lex luthor there's gonna be the whole you know back and forth and whatever and like that's fine like it's fine i don't don't feel like it wraps up in any like real monumental way um but what, what ends up you know being the case right is once that is all you know set aside okay Batman acted honorably based on what Lois has been encouraging him to do and all those things, then he switches his persona to be not so dark, yes. And by comparison to how awesome the Batman design is, I don't know how I feel about this. (laughs) This is Awful. Like,
0: it's not. I mean, the suit itself isn't bad. It's whatever they did with the face mask, which I'll post this in the video as well in a closer image.
1: It looks but like it, a rejected, you know, vindicator uh, or whatever. Eradicator, you know, like, yeah, yeah, the eradicator from the return, you know, rate of the Superman stuff. Like that yeah. looks like. Yeah, this is what idea we have. We said not
0: to use it, you yeah, know? it. It doesn't work. It's not great. A um, couple things that are really great about this story is. The way they draw Bruce Wayne, he's, it's almost as if they took what Clark Kent and Bruce Wayne look like and mashed them together. Because there's like the S-curl, but there's like the, the Bruce Wayne like eyes and eyebrows. It's very blended, and, and the artist really does a great job of like melding those two characters together to look like one
1: person. It was really impressive how they did that. Yeah, so I, I this is one of those that yeah it, you're saying you don't hear people talk about it very much. If you have not read the Speeding Bullets book, you should go seek this out. If you're a fan at all of the the you know now we're in this world of multiverses coming out in the movies. If that wasn't something you looked at before, we got the What If Show coming on to Disney Plus. Mm-hmm. This is a great place to start. Yeah. Like I say, that they're kind of hit and miss. You get some good ones, then after a while you get maybe a run.s of, okay idea of it not executed well but this is one of the best examples i would say if you were gonna say hey wait what well you know what is this elseworlds thing i hear about you hand them this book people like oh that was pretty cool it's like yeah "Yeah, it was wasn't it like it's familiar enough and then tweaks it just enough that it's new and exciting yeah this one's really really unique the only
0: other than the superman reveal the costume at the end the only complaint i have about this story and i noticed it last night when i reread it the first half of the book feels like it's narrated by Alfred. The mm. second half feels like it's narrated by Lois. But, they, but like, normally in comics, what they would do is they would change the font or change what the, little, the thought bubble would look like, and they don't. So you kind of like get a little confused. like Who is telling us this story? And it's, when he's a child, it's, it's Alfred. And I had to like really look at it. But as it evolves and Lois Lane comes onto the scene, it becomes Lois Lane
1: which is weird, but it was good. It was fine. I have no complaints otherwise. Yeah, de- definitely. They could clean that up a little bit, but overall a great adventure, a great way to go. And we're talking to you, Mattel, or whoever has the DC license these days.
0: McFarland does actually.
1: Oh, oh, that's right. Hey, McFarland, Todd, get after it, man. This is waiting to happen. And this he's doing all Elseworlds
0: stuff right now.
1: Jody, have you ever read
2: Speeding Bullets? I have. It's been a while, but yes. Yes, uh, I'll get a poster that on my wall underneath the uh, Green Lantern
0: 50. We do have a good conversation about it. That'll be coming up real soon on our YouTube channel, so check that out. And Jody, thank you so much for joining us. You were a lot of fun to talk to, and we're glad to finally have you on this show after a year's time, so to speak, which is crazy. Your stories were fantastic, and I loved your insight. So if people want to continue with the conversation with you online where can they find you
2: well if anybody wants to uh follow me on twitter i'm at regal fan and i like to post goofy stuff i read in old bronze age comics and just different stuff so uh if
0: you want to follow me i would be grateful to have you
1: awesome cool
0: adam anything else any final thoughts
1: Yeah, well, I mean, and if you want to find us online, you know where to go. It's at Wizards Comics on Twitter, at Wizards underscore comics on Instagram. But yeah, we uh, are really enjoying uh, the conversations that we're having. We're trying to open things more up to you guys to be part of the show. So don't forget that on the mini episodes now, Michael has uh, turned over quite a bit of the stuff that was just driving him nuts to you, the listener. So all the quizzes, that's in your hands. He's going to follow you on social media. All the things that you're doing to figure out the answers, polling each other. And he will uh, try to figure out the correct answers, tell you if you got it. Some of the other pieces that we'll be adding to the half episodes will be uh, a little bit different than what we've been bringing to you previously. We want to freshen it up a little bit. So we hope that you will uh, enjoy those segments as they begin to appear. I I,
0: I will add that this month's hunk and Babe is something i can't even put my head around it it's just it's, it's something i've been
1: working right. on my very white voice <laughs> oh, and i will see what i can do to uh to follow in your footsteps michael until oh, it drives me insane good luck godspeed <laughs> but until next time keep your books bagged and boring